This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1975, and I see you shiver with Antissa. Podcast. The movie? Rocky Horror Picture Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, as always, joined by my co-host, Amy Nicholson, and today we are doing our Halloween film. After years of people saying, don't do a whole month of horror films, we have picked one film that is not as scary as a horror film, but also tips its hat to Halloween costumes and so much more. It's the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Amy, this is a movie I didn't think we would ever really do on this show. Oh, this is a movie I always knew we'd do on the show. This is a movie I absolutely adore. To me, watching it at home without an audience, without the spectacle, was a completely different experience. And I was really kind of blown away to see where this movie started. Because I think my knowledge of this film, I didn't understand it was really versed in a successful West End musical. And the influences that not only it had, but then it spread forward. This is a this is a big film. This is a big film. I think it really captures a moment of a cultural shift that was taking place in 1975. A moment that I sort of wonder how similar it is to now. It's a moment I'm kind of looking out for because I feel like I, there's a lot of the same energy happening. And I would almost argue, in a way, the cultural shift that this movie predicted or at least opened the door to has now become mainstream in a way. Like, right, we are in a world of camp. We are in a world of heightened reality. And that's really interesting to look at this film with the eyes of now to really see how far we've come, question mark? Yes, although I do think that Frankenfurter would still scare the life out of many people, including many people in Congress. So true. bless him for that. And I will say, this is a movie that maybe one of my most perverse opinions is I actually really like watching this movie by myself, not in a theater, because I think there's just so much detail to appreciate. That is a little hard for me when I am throwing rice in the air. <laughs> well, that's just in the very beginning. And by the way, though, on the note of sort of joint love that does exist in a movie theater, I would like to do something a little different with this episode, and I would like to dedicate it to somebody. I would like to dedicate our Rocky Horror episode to Brittany Knupper. Um, she is the biggest Rocky Horror fan that I was ever blessed to know. Brittany passed away this June, and at her memorial this summer, uh, a half dozen Frankenfurters performed. They did the big closing number at the end of the movie. They did I'm Going Home in her honor. And it brought everybody to tears, uh, including myself. And so I want this episode to go out to Brittany. She was just a fantastic and funny weirdo. And um, the cult of people who loved her will keep her memory alive, uh, including every single time we watch this film. 
Oh, wow. I love that. And, uh, you know, I guess for Brittany, we will unspool it. The year is 1975, and Fox has made a flop. They were not expecting the Rocky Horror Picture Show would bomb this bad. In 1973, the Rocky Horror Picture Show opens in London and is voted Best Musical. And the live show even does well in L.A. too. It's more or less the same show. So when Fox decides to make it into a movie musical, they were not expecting it to be an epic flop because it is. And right now, they are lost. I mean, because they haven't changed a thing. Same show, same music, same director, most of the same cast. Yet, the giant theaters the movie is playing in across the country are almost completely empty. That's just 50 people in a theater that seats 800. Maybe it's the story? The Rocky Horror Picture Show is a little out there. It's about two nice, normal kids named Brad and Janet, played by Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon. They're two of the new people in the cast. Brad and Janet open the movie getting engaged, and then they get a flat tire, and they wind up at a mysterious Midwestern castle full of total freaks. There's the butler and maid, Riff Raff and Magenta. That's Richard O'Brien, who wrote the musical, and Patricia Quinn. There's this squeaky tap-dancing girl named Columbia and her lobotomized greaser boyfriend, Eddie, Those actors go by the perfectly normal names, Lil Nell and Meatloaf. And then there's Rocky himself, this lab-created blonde muscle man played by Peter Hinwood. So many abs on that guy. And then the scientist who created him, Dr. Frankenfurter, the screen debut of this British Shakespearean stage actor named Tim Curry. Well, that's the basic story, but what we're really watching is wild and transgressive sexual energy. Frankenfurter is in fishnets. Rocky is in the tiniest gold shorts. Brad and Janet are in their underwear, and everyone is pawing at each other until a climactic orgy in a swimming pool, after which half of the characters get murdered by aliens with laser guns. Yes, that happens. And maybe you forgot that when you saw it in a midnight movie like me. and. I think watching it not in a midnight movie explains what happens to two-thirds of the test audience who walked out. You know, so Fox hands it flop over to the youngest marketing guy at the company and says, we don't know what to do. You fix it. Figure out how to make this movie make money. And he does. We will get to how this movie goes from flop to cult legend in a minute. But what is important now is that this little $1 million movie absolutely Bombs on September 26, 1975, and it has now made $226 million and counting. That is over six times the box office of Little Shop of Horrors, which I would say is probably the most comparable film that we have covered on this show. Rocky Horror Picture Show has, of course, become this cultural touchstone for several generations of weirdos who have found their people in the crowd at Rocky Horror. So what was in the zeitgeist that September 26, 1975? A perfect song by a perfect artist, one whose futuristic gender bending, hello, yes, I am a space alien. This whole vibe that he created three years ago inspired the stage production that inspired, well, everything to come. It is David Bowie giving this movie his blessing that it will find its own, as the title of the song says, fame. Amy, I'm on such a David Bowie kick because a couple weekends ago, I saw Brandi Carlisle at the Hollywood Bowl. She brought out Joni Mitchell again. I saw Joni, the Joni Jam a couple months ago, but I saw Annie Lennox both times. Annie Lennox has blown me away. And in searching through Annie Lennox stuff, I've been blown away by Annie Lennox and David Bowie together. Check this out. Like you should watch them sing together. It is Truly, it, it's on YouTube. There's multiple versions of the two of them just being awesome with each other. So I loved hearing uh, some <laughs> fame right there. Random fun fact about me. The only one of two people that strangers ever tell me I look like is Joni Mitchell, which is absolutely really? bizarre because we don't look anything alike. We just have the same haircut. But the number of times people on airplanes have been, you look just like Joni Mitchell. And I want to say 
It's only the bangs, man. It's only the bangs. You know what? I will say, though, put a blue filter over your face and you could look at the cover (laughs) of blue. I feel like that could work. Amy, (laughs) I got to tell you, Rocky Horror Picture Show, watching this movie not inside a crowded theater was a true experience. It was quite bizarre, actually. I've only seen this movie in a crowded theater. I've seen it twice. Both amazing experiences because of the pomp and circumstance around the movie. Watching it cold, just watching it the way it was intended. Different, weird, rough. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh I I love this movie. I am I am a person who knows this soundtrack so incredibly well. It's a great soundtrack. And I think it is a absolutely beautiful masterpiece. I love watching it solo because then I can really concentrate on all the details in this movie. But I mean, isn't this movie a mess? I mean, there's a reason why it's a cult classic. Yes, I know it made all this money since 1975. I mean, it made $226 million, like you mentioned, in, what, 45 years? So, you know... Certain Marvel hey, movies. Hey, how do that old are you? How much eight? money have you made? <laughs> but I'm just saying, certain <laughs> Marvel movies can make that in uh, in a space of a couple of months. So it's impressive that it's been playing this long. But I don't think it's been playing this long because it's a classic. I think it's been playing this long because it's this bizarre piece of art. It's a, it's a different type of movie. I mean, we have to just come to agreement on that on some level, right? Or do you think it's no. a great movie? Really? I think it's a great movie. I think it's a legitimately great movie. You think it's a well-acted great movie? I do think it's an incredibly well-acted wow. great movie. Okay. Tell me why. Because everybody is leaning into the trope that their character is supposed to be portraying. That Susan Sarandon is the ultimate heroine. And Barry Bostwick is playing this ultimate caricature of a hero. And they're leaning into playing these characters large and goofy and fake and square-jawed like they would be in a B, a B movie. And everybody else is doing that same vibe. And then you suddenly have Tim Curry enter as Frankenfurter, who I think is like a complicated, wonderful, beautiful, emotional character. He's he's violent. He's mean. He's snobby. He's messy. He's possessive. He's lovelorn. He's tragic. He's sobbing. I mean, to me, this movie is taking all of the beats of King Kong, legitimate classic, all of the beats of Frankenstein, legitimate classic adding all the sparkle and shine to it, launching movie stars and doing it in a way where it, it it may seem like a lot of chaos is on the screen, but it is like thought out and manicured and marvelous. Wait, let's go back here. You think that Susan Sarandon was launched from this movie into movie stardom? You think this is the movie that did it? Well, okay, no, she'd already been in Joe. She'd already been in a bunch of stuff. She was already playing heroines on stuff like soap operas. So no, Susan Sarandon was on a track regardless. But this, this, I think, is such a special place for her in pop culture. And you cannot deny that it did not launch Tim Curry. Never done a movie before this. An unforgettable presence after here. Tim Curry is straight up amazing. And you know what? I don't disagree with you. And I'm not going to come at this movie super negatively. But I do want to unpack what I find to be true. Because you and I have gotten into this debate a lot. Like, about The Room, and you like, well, The Room is a bad movie, and I believe The Room belongs on whatever list we're making of 100 films to go to space. I believe The Room belongs on that list because it is, to me, someone who's watched a lot of bad movies, a movie that kind of transcends all bad movies. There's something that's unique and passionate and interesting about it. And I would say that the closest companion piece that The Room has is this film, in the sense that These are the only two films that I can think of that have a legacy of being the midnight movie. And for very different reasons. But I do think, at least in my experience with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I don't know if it's good, if it's legend. Like, if we were to watch this cold, not having any history of it, I'd be like, Amy, why did you make me watch this movie? This is straight up crazy. But I do think that we need to examine like a movie like this because there's only, like I said, two of these in existence that have this like cultural phenomenon attached to them. Oh, Paul, it's so weird to agree with you so much and disagree with you so strongly (laughs) in the same breath. I mean, yes, legacy wise, Rocky Horror, 
up there with the room. And I would say surpassing it, far surpassing it with the room. Sure. But the room is an accidental masterpiece. You are definitely going to the room to the left at the room. I think that Rocky Horror was made with such attention to detail and such care that every single time I watch this movie, I notice something new that like the actors are doing, that the director is doing. You know, small jokes, small little gags that are built into the sound design. The thing that really knocked me out this watch, and I will say I have watched this movie so many times, is that, you know, at the very beginning when you have Janet and Brad getting married in this like very strange and somewhat vanilla way where Susan Sarandon is saying things that just like on the nose sounds so sincere and beautiful about the art of, of weddings. And yet when you're listening, you're like, really? Is this an improvement in your life? Oh, Brad, wasn't it wonderful? Didn't Betty look radiantly beautiful? Oh, I can't believe it. An hour ago, she was plain old Betty Monroe. And now, now she's Mrs. Ralph Hapshat. <gasps> yes, Janet, Ralph's a lucky guy. Yes. Oh, he'll always cry at weddings. Uh, everyone knows that Betty's a wonderful little cook. Yes. Why, Ralph himself, he'll be in line for a promotion in a year or two. Yes. Hey, Janet. Yes, Brad? I've got something to say. Uh-huh. I really love the... skillful way you beat the other girls to the bride's bouquet. I mean, that name is not an improvement. But what I love in that scene is as she's talking about it, and I let it play along, you hear like the twinkling, over-exaggerated, like chirping birds behind her slowly go from like, oh, it's a sunshiny day and we're robins to like scary crows who are cawing. In the stage direction of this, they're walking from like the church steps to the tombs, to the graveyards. They're transitioning these scenes within them and like commenting on like the art of marriage. They're going into churches and watching as like the flower arrangements get spun around from weddings into funeral flowers. And there's just so much happening in the background to kind of get this point across that like normal life, doing what you think you're supposed to because it's what everybody else is doing is just a straight shot to death. I like. I mean, I like this reading. I mean, I it's just, not a reading. It's right there. <laughs> What's really interesting about this movie is it is camp. You know, it's 1975. It's an interesting time in. American culture, really, at this point, right? You have this year where like, the Vietnam War ends. President Ford survives two assassination attempts. Patty Hearst is arrested for armed robbery. And we have, like, Saturday Night Live premiering. You have this culture of weird is coming in, right? Jelly Belly is introduced. Pet Rocks, Mood Rings, Hello Kitty. And I feel like this movie is the equivalent to that. This, this movie is Pet Rocks. This movie is Mood Rings, right? Uh, Susan Sontag uh, wrote this essay in 1964 called Notes on Camp. And she said, the whole point of camp is to dethrone the serious. One can be serious about the frivolous and frivolous about the serious. The camp taste requires like this appreciation of work's artificiality, where work can be camp without being beautiful. And messages contained in camp can't be conveyed effectively or at all because his viewers were too busy admiring the work's extravagance to process such a message. We don't know what we're taking seriously, what we're not taking seriously. Like this movie is incredibly different and weird and alive. But I think that at the end of it, you could just write it off as just nonsense. Oh, then you would do so and shortchange yourself of such <laughs> pleasure. I mean, yes, this is a moment of weirdness, but this is also a moment that I just find so exciting culturally because you also have this new cinema that's been burbling up from the underground. I mean, we just talked about John Waters, you know, Pink Flamingos hits theaters in 1972. 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974, right after this. I feel like there's definitely not as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in here. We do have, you know, Frankenfurter sitting around the kitchen table, like silencing people with his electric knife, doing that whole like evil daddy shtick that we saw in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Such a funny scene. Came here to discuss Eddie. That's a rather tender subject. Another slice, anyone? Young Frankenstein comes out the year before this. You know, they're reworking these ideas of, like, classic films and making them young and making them modern. And you are getting this rise of, like, midnight movies coming from the outside. You know, Pink Flamingos is definitely not insider. El Topo was not made by a studio. This is a studio kind of taking a bet on, like, we sense that there is weirdness happening in this culture. And maybe this is the project in which we can sort of capture some of that, that we can kind of channel that energy. And I would say where the target is in this film is not even so much that what's happening on screen is camp, but that the way that people have been living their lives up until this point, that that is camp. That this too is kind of doing that same thing Douglas Sirk is doing, of being like, oh, all you normies getting married, you don't even know what you're doing. And, you know, all of these movies that kind of steeped us, you know, all of these B movies from like the 30s and 40s that are getting this beautiful ode at the beginning of the film. Here are the ways that we think life goes. Here are the fictions that we buy into. And it's kind of talking about how we interpret pop culture. Well, I mean, I would argue that camp, right? And this is a camp classic a, or a cult classic, a camp film, like is doing exactly that, right? It, it's saying that, Anything that is the conventional wisdom is wrong. How can you subvert that, right? And I think that even this idea of what Tim Curry's character does, like finding the masculine and the feminine is part of that too. It's like we are ticking down society. We're not saying it's all binary. We're not saying that everything is black and white. And I think it's interesting that these movies are often so big in queer culture because queer culture is like we are living outside the conventional morality. And like movies like this expose that there is another way of looking at the world around us. And you could probably argue that this castle, when you said it in the opening, in the Midwest, right? I'm like, oh yeah, this movie is in the Midwest. Do you think this movie is in like Transylvania because <laughs> of, of certain lyrics and things? Like, could there be a castle in our town where this is going on, like behind this door? If we were to stop with a flat tire, this whole other world is open to us. And there's something really interesting about that, like that idea that, you know, that there is this whole other culture going on, this whole other society, this whole other way of looking at something. But I don't know if the Broadway musical had the same effect or or did it because musicals in general are camp right i mean they're big they're glossy it's 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 about the songs and songs in this are fantastic i love the songs but i feel like this movie is definitely pushing the camp this movie is pushing the camp it seems like well you can hear sort of the like i guess i would call it like the lo-fi cheekiness of what like the original london musical sounded like you know here here's a little clip of like how that opening song sounds there then something went wrong for Fay ray and king kong they got caught in a this musical itself kind of did become like a touchstone for all the fun weirdos. You know, of course, like Bowie goes, Mick Jagger goes, Lou Reed goes, Tennessee Williams goes, you know, these outsider art figures who kind of were shaping pop culture in their own hands are like giving this movie their blessing. You're describing what this movie, I think, puts on screen really well. You know, here's what it's like to be two quote unquote normal people who show up and are welcomed kind of against their will into this underground way of life. And they're resisting it for a little bit. They're trying to act like they're in control. You know, what I love so much about like Barry Boswick in here is he's just acting like exactly how he thinks he's supposed to in a situation where he has no idea what's going on, but he absolutely has to pretend like he knows what's going on because acting forceful is the only way that he knows how to get by when he is feeling nervous. It's not often we receive visitors here, let alone offer them hospitality. Hospitality? All we wanted to do was to use your telephone, goddammit, a reasonable request which you've chosen to ignore. Now, don't be ungrateful. Ungrateful? 
How forceful you are, Brad. Such a perfect specimen of manhood. So dominant. <laughs> And then at the same time, you have Susan Sarandon just trying to put everything into little boxes that she understands. You know, okay, we're at this house. Well, uh, who's married to who? Who's in love with who? How does all of this work? And so they're trying to take this world they don't understand and translate it and put it under their control. And it does not work. And they both get literally seduced by it. And they get their like feelings hurt a little bit. And then just go on this ride of like... Who am I really? Like, who do I, who could I really be that isn't the person that I thought I was this morning? I mean, you're right. Like, that is a beautiful analogy for discovering anything new. I bet going to see this movie itself felt like that for kids. You know, walking into this theater and being like, oh, my God, look at all these weirdos. I have finally found my people. What this movie lacks in plot, or I should say the plot is slightly incoherent to a certain extent, right? We have this couple who live a very heteronormative life and then they end up in this castle. And that's basically, like after there, the plot gets to me, I'm like, oh, and then this is going on. And and I think that that person's an alien and he's also a scientist. He's created this like fuck toy. It's hard to like wrap your head around, but I think the one thing that I find really interesting is there's no judgment in this world. And even the adultery that kind of happens, I don't know if it's adultery if you're just engaged, but the adultery that happens here, the cheating, or isn't really judged. Like Brad, when he is seduced by Frankenfurter, like is okay with it. And I think that that's like a, a pretty wild idea for a movie at this point to put forward. I feel like the sexual politics of culture theater is coming out in this movie and, and really interesting in weird ways. Yeah, I mean, and for Curry to be playing this character in both. I mean, I found an interview from the time where he's talking about kind of the difference in like adapting Frankenfurter from the stage into the screen. And of course, one of the things he's saying is like, I had to figure out how to make this character a little smaller. I found making the film more uh, annoying in that way than doing the play. Because if you do the play, it's just two hours a day and that you're actually in it doing it and the rest of the day you're 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 yourself you're yourself and doing the film partly because i've never made one before and so um the work for me is total uh i found it for the first time actually beginning to be a bit schizophrenic in that if you spend the whole day in a pound and a half of max factor uh at the end of the day, when you wipe it off, you, there's, there's always a little bit left in the cracks. And what I really like about Frankenfurter and his performance is how in control he is until he wants to let it go. I mean, he's kind of operating in sort of a similar key to Divine, where he's created a character who represents just like absolutely breaking all norms. You know, a man dressed in woman's clothes, the way that Divine considered himself too. You know, being... Very sexual, doing whatever he wants, also killing people, also murdering people, you know, being a, a person who is like coming in from the underground to kind of make people nervous. And I love that he also goes another step beyond that. You know, Divine was making people nervous around this time, but Frankenfurter also winds up having so much vulnerability where he's like, by the end of it, you know, sobbing through his tears and you're like rooting for this guy. He takes you on a journey of like, making you care about a person who has murdered meatloaf and then served everybody meatloaf for dinner. Which, by the way, meatloaf, not a rock star yet. This is years before Batted of Hell comes out. This is meatloaf's debut. It wasn't like we found this rock star and put him in this movie. It was like, hey, here's this guy who's been kicking around the musical scene, and this is the movie that makes him a pop star. And then also, uh, of course, like Tim Curry tries to become a pop star, too. He had an album uh, that was like, named in a way that was definitely referring to Rocky Horror called Read My Lips. He sounds very suave. You can hear that. Anyone who had a heart could look at me and know that I love you. Anyone who ever dreamed could look at me In 
And yet, on top of everything we're describing about Frankenfurter, one of the things I definitely did not notice when I was a kid is that when he shows up and he's wearing, you know, his sort of first lady house dress looking outfit, he's also wearing, you know, a pink triangle on his dress. It photographs a little red because he's wearing like bright pink gloves, but it's a pink triangle. He's like nodding to persecution that has happened to like the LGBTQ community. He's basically positioning Frankenfurter as somebody who has been persecuted, you know, or tying him into persecution and then also having him be the killer and then also having him be the mad scientist who creates Aryan men, you know, which is just like so many ideas kind of layered into one. And then having a German doctor when they like reveals that he's German being like Von Scott. There's all of this idea in here of like who gets to be the perfect man, who is persecuted. And of course, you know, using the language of Nazis, which was only 30 years before all of this. You know, and I wonder how intentional all of this is. You know, Richard O'Brien is an unemployed actor during London in the 70s, right? And he loves science fiction. And he loves B-horror movies. And he wants to make something that is kind of a mashup, a collage of all these things. So he's like, oh, I want to I wanna do the the bad dialogue of horror i want to have like like the music of like the 1950s like that kind of rock and roll music and then i also am fascinated by what's going on in british pop culture right so all of a sudden we have all these mixing of things it's collage i think the original musical was only 90 minutes so in 90 minutes you know, they need to flesh out the movie. So they start adding scenes. And as they add scenes and they bring people in, all of a sudden the movie is taking on elements now of hammer horror classics, right? And that's like, oh, that's another element of it. And then the the costumes and the makeup and the props, like that that started with the actors doing that themselves, almost very much like a, like a drag show, right? And then for the movie, they have uh, Pierre LaRoche who did the makeup for Mick Jagger and David Bowie. And then all of a sudden I feel like, all these elements are mixing and mashing with each other. And it creates this thing that you're talking about that does speak to persecution, that does speak to gay culture. I, I, it's incredibly collaborative to the point that even watching this movie is a collaborative effort. Like, you, you know, ideally you're watching this with a group of people who are acting this out, who have their own rituals that build this whole thing. Like this movie isn't, watched appropriately, I'd argue, unless you are in a theater where everybody is performing with it. So I think that's something really interesting about how often we're told film is, you know, a director's medium. It's one voice seen through from the beginning to the end. And this is something that through every step of the process, from the original inception to the West End show, to the LA show, to the movie, to current day, has been something that has basically been like a giant Katamari. Is that, do you know what I'm talking about when I say Katamari? What is Katamari? Katamari is this game, uh, like it's a giant ball. It's like a like a Japanese game. And you're, you start off as like a little ball and you step on, like you kind of roll and get more things on the ball and your ball gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you have to like roll around and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Josh, our producer knows what I'm talking about. But it's like this idea that like you collect everything from your environment as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, you uh, can collect more and more things. I like that. That's how I want my brain to be as I get older and older. And I do think that this movie has elements of that. Like, I think this movie is like, we're pulling in everything. My performance, like, not my performance, sorry. Tim Curry's performance too. Did you just say my performance like you are Tim Curry? I Well, I said it and then I corrected myself. I said my performance. I you're, said you're, you. you're in your heart. You are Tim Curry. That's who you'd play. Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know who I would play. I mean, I know I have the abs for his creation. <laughs> um, I mean, in my high school talent show, I was Riff Raff. <laughs> really? That's amazing. Yeah, I like Riff Raff. I don't know what he's, he's a real weirdo. Well, I guess this is what I'm saying is that like at the core of this movie, without all the extras, we're talking about two people who are kind of getting married because they're seeing their friends get married and then they walk into this world where anything is possible and everything is accepted. And it's a world in which even certain characters there, like Dr. Frankenfurter, like he's also looking for love. And who is the perfect person for him? And we have people looking for love 
people just accepting what society gives them for this is what love is. You partner up, you get married, and it's fine. It's bland. It's boring. I mean, I know the movie was supposed to be black and white before they get to uh, the castle, and then it was supposed to be in color, but they didn't have money to do that. Oh, they're going to do the whole Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it would have been amazing. And I mean, that makes sense because they're also double casting people at the beginning. Absolutely. That is very Wizard of Oz. And so then when you get into this other world, like the problems are still the same, looking for love, but the ways that you can find love, I'm talking about the very base level of this, is very different. And it feels freeing. And this like orgy that happens in the pool, like there's this idea that you can be the most exposed because our main character is pretty much in underwear for most of the movie. Uh, you know, it's like, and you can be who you really are. You can say how you really feel. Like that to me is like the biggest theme of this movie is like love who you want to love, how you want to love. And you don't have to worry about anything else. Like, yes, there's a whole bunch of noise. And that's what this movie kind of feels like. And it's great noise. And it's fun noise. And it's beautiful noise. It's cool to look at. But it's a whole bunch of noise. And but at the end of the day, like just embrace who you are regardless of what anyone says and don't judge anything for being weird or different just be and i think that that probably is why this movie resonates more than others because there are camp movies i mean obviously you know we talked about uh rocky horror and the room i think you could add showgirls into that but but this core concept is as i think this theme of like love who you want how you want and don't worry about it and i think that that's that probably is the most important or the biggest reason why this movie exists. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, in that scene that you're describing in the pool, you know, what we're hearing as the orgy is happening is not like some sort of punk rock song from like the 70s or something, you know, because punk rock is like just starting to start now. You can see that in the clothes. Punk is just starting like at this moment, like the Sex Pistols have formed, but they haven't even released a first album yet. So punk comes out of British glam. Yeah, yeah, and glam is already happening. But like the song isn't like, hey, everybody, let's fuck. The song is beautiful. And I would say the song is sincere. Don't dream it. Be it. Don't dream it. Be it. I mean, and that's the mix that I really love about this, that like lovely sincerity layered on top of the madness. I mean, I love Rocky Horror Live. I've seen Rocky Horror Live a bunch of times. I I adore it. But one of the things I actually don't love about watching it live is that, you know, in kind of the script of everything that everybody yells at the characters, they're always just being really mean to them, you know? And I actually happen to love these characters. Like when people in the room are like, Calling Janet Weiss a bitch. I'm like, no. Like, I love Janet Weiss. I really <laughs> love her character. I love the journey that she goes on. And I feel that way about everybody. I love Columbia. You know, I, I think Columbia is wonderful. And so that the crowd who loves Rocky Horror also yells mean things at the characters is one of the dynamics that I kind of struggle with a little bit. I love the energy. And I love that those people love this movie as much as I do. But I get protective of these characters. I get that. I think that you have two things at play. That song, Don't Dream It, Be It, is this idea of be yourself, be original, have fun, right? And that's what the live shows are. The live shows are simply that. It, it is people dressing up, going crazy. And I think that part of that, not that I want to defend calling Janet names, but part of that is having fun with the concept of being in a movie theater, like, this is our lead, and we're like, you're a bitch. Like, it's like that mentality uh, that Daniel LaRusso has always been the villain of Karate Kid. Like, he's the true villain. It's like, wait a second, we were told one thing, but actually that's not true. And I think that, that there's an energy of that rebellion. I mean, I guess it's one more layer in a movie that's all about commenting on the act of being in a movie and and what it is like to live in a movie and, and, and basically take so many of the notes in this movie from other movies, you know, to have like the exact same ending as as King Kong to, to mess with our empathy a little bit. I mean, if this movie is like operating in the world of King Kong and Frankenstein, which it really it really is a mashup of it. We know and we've covered those movies and you feel it when you watch them, this idea of like empathizing with the monster, the people who persecute the monster are the monsters themselves. And in this one, it gets blurrier. 
I think the person you almost empathize with the least, not the least, 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 but like low on the scale is the character who's kind of playing the Frankenstein's mantra version, who is Rocky Horror. But I don't know, like, how do you feel in that scene where Frankenfurter has been shot with the lasers and then you have Rocky Horror putting him over his shoulder and like doing the con climb and the music is so emotional. And then at the same time, it's absurd because you're also hearing like an airplane crash, you know, a sound effect that is not happening at all. It's sort of just like adding to the noise of everything going on. Like, I mean, is this movie the equivalent of shitposting? I think this movie is actively saying, don't care about the plot. Don't care about this. It doesn't make difference. Like, get to the emotional core. And what you just talked about, yes, it's because at the end of the day, the reason why Tim Curry is so good is because we connect with him on an emotional level. Is he an alien? I don't know. I mean, yes, he is, I guess. But it doesn't make sense. It doesn't help or hurt the movie if he is or he isn't. Like, the only thing that we need to know is, like, his base level desires. And I think that that's why the ending can work. I think that that's why you are connected to it. Yeah. I mean, I think like the sincerity keeps it from being a complete shit post. Well, is that like drag shows? Is there an element there? Because like drag shows are a parody of like, they're their own thing, but there is a sincerity within it too. It's taking it seriously. And like, I would argue that camp has become embraced in our culture and we could tell stories through camp. I think Ryan Murphy does that. Camp is like melodrama. We talked about melodrama and, you know, we were talking about that a couple weeks ago. Like, is melodrama bad? Like, camp and melodrama exist in the same kind of diagram or there's a crossover, I think. I mean, that is true. Like, when we were talking about melodrama a lot in the Douglas Sirk episode, we were talking about how people went to melodramas because they kind of reasserted order. You know, you had the heroine, you had the hero, and everything worked out. And so, yeah, this is, like, definitely embracing that. I mean, when Janet goes, like, full woe is me heroine. She really goes for it. If only we hadn't made this journey. If only the car hadn't broken down. Oh, if only we were amongst friends. But then, like, the proper vintage style of melodrama is supposed to reconcile everything and make the world make sense again. Everything's going to be fine. The hero saved the day. We're all going to go home. We're all going to be happy. Normalcy has reigned. And this is just not that. Normalcy does not reign. And there's that framing device in here that I just think is so funny where you realize right on that this has become a police case where you have this narrator flipping through a book and like you're seeing police statements and photographs and it's framed in this idea almost like it's a true crime show, you know, like what has gone wrong and what has happened. Because the last time we really see Brad and Janet, things do not look great for them. They're writhing around covered in ash. And, you know, then like, The question becomes, like, whose side are we on? You know, you might start the movie being like, this Frankenfurter is dangerous. But by the end, when Frankenfurter is, like, having a gun pointed at his face, there's only one other person in the room who wants him dead. And it's the guy who's a Nazi, who's just like, yeah, yeah, kill him. Kill him? What's his crime? You saw what became of Eddie. Society must be protected. Exactly, Dr. Scott. And, you know, by the time you're at this point in the movie... I don't want to be on the same side as Dr. Scott. (laughs) It kind of like reminds me a little bit of Chicago. Is that crazy? Like I'm like the musical. We talked about that here on this show too. Like this idea, this transformation, this person who goes from one world into another world and murder becomes a part of the story. And like this co-opting of morals and you change your point of view of who you're rooting for as the thing goes on a little bit. You know, we come in, I think, with Brad and Janet, and I think we go out with Frankfurter. Yeah, I mean, I think Susan Sarandon is playing this big, and Barry Boswick's playing this big, and everybody is playing this very, very big. One of the only people who's not 
is actually Tim Curry. I feel like Tim Curry felt like he needed to make his character also as real as possible at the same time. It is parody, but it also, I'm, I play it and think it as a kind of grisly reality. And uh, Frankenfurter, as a variation on Frankenstein, is, a, is obsessed with, with image and the way that things look. And, uh, but I see him and play him as, as a kind of grisly, re- real freak. You know, I wonder if that's because Tim Curry is our lead character who lives outside the normal world. And so in a way, I mean, yes, it's a heightened character, but emotionally a real character, delivers his lines less stilted than Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon. And obviously, like you said, we know that Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon are good actors. They're making a choice. And I think that by making his character not only fluid uh, sexually, but also, uh, but more importantly, uh, just in the way that he speaks and communicates, it actually connects you most to him because he is the most normal, right? He And even though he may look a little different than we expect, we are connected to him because he's the one that is the most movie star of this entire film. Like he is the one that represents the things that we are aware of that movies do. And if he is the normal in this movie, that's how extreme this movie goes. And that's like the camp aspect of the movie. And I'm thinking about like Death Becomes Her, that you would consider that. Uh, a marvelous like, movie? Yes. A mar- yes, but I mean, but that's <laughs> but that's another like campy or melodramatic movie. It's, it, it's, it's arched eyebrows. It's big. It's the drama that I think we've come to expect from reality TV. Reality TV is camp, right? When you watch like these Bravo shows, that's kind of what we're getting. We're not watching actors. And I know it's under the guise of reality. We're watching characters be outrageous and crazy. Ryan Murphy, you know, like I mentioned, has made a career out of larger than like Kim Kardashian in American Horror Story. Like we now, I think as a culture, embrace this in a weird way. I think if this movie was made today, it would actually be... (laughs) more well-received, you know, because I think culturally we are there now. Camp is pop. And then that makes me want to lay down the Dick's Challenge, which is if you like Rocky Horror Picture Show, go see Dick's the Musical, because that feels like a version of this for this generation. I love the Dick's Challenge, but I think that I don't even know if that makes sense anymore because we're we're a culture of camp. Maybe it's like we are so obsessed with the conventions of the way that we make TV and film that we're like, we can't explode it, but we can still understand what it is at its core. I mean, I love that idea because I think you're right. I think, you know, this movie is drawing from the 30s. Steven Spielberg is rising up at this time and drawing from the 30s. I mean, one of the taglines that they tried out for this movie is like, you know, a different set of Jaws. And it's like Steven Spielberg is mining all of the adventure serials. And those just sort of become absorbed into the culture. You know, same thing with George Lucas, absorbing like all of the Flash Gordon serials and like putting them in the culture. And we're like, yes, this is what a normal movie is, drawing from these touchstones from the 1930s. And this is just how the world looks. But then you draw from the weirder movies or the horror movies or like the the female-driven pictures with emotions. And you're like, that's weird. And isn't it funny how those two things just evolve? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm thinking right now about even what we talked about when we watched Saw, right? Like, I mean, horror plays into camp. Like, all these things, it's like, James Wan, I think, is a great example of that. Like, when I watch Malignant, like, Malignant is fucking bananas, but awesome. Yeah, well, yeah, and I think one of the smart things that happened, I mean, you were talking about, what was that word? Katakuri? Katamuri? Katamari. Katamari. You know, the Katamari of it all. I mean, Richard O'Brien, my riffraff, like, he first wanted to make this movie, I think, a lot more on the nose about its movie inspirations you know his first name was they came from denton high that was the title and i think that is too limiting that almost puts it in too much of a box of like we are commenting solely on old movies and solely on old tropes and to give it its own kind of name that exists on its own the rocky horror picture show where it's not obviously nodding to something in its title i think that's really cool because maybe you have to make that shift away from the origin in order for the art to stand on its own And you know what I think is so striking is like, yeah, we were talking about how this comes up when glam is brand new and punk is on the horizon. And I love the idea of going to the movie theater in 1975. And this just feels new. 
Because this is what I'm always looking out for as a critic is like, what's the new thing that's going to feel new? Like, here's the new generation rising up. Here's what they're making. Here's what they're interested in. I mean, we're we're beyond the point in the culture now where like if an actor showed up with kind of, I don't know, Lil Peep face tattoos, it would be considered as fresh as Rocky Horror was to the glam movement in 1975. Like we kind of missed that moment and didn't put it on screen yet, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so what else is new? And and that challenge, I think, is so interesting. And then yet, like when I watch this movie today and you get to like the time warp sequence, which weirdly is my least favorite song. When I look at what? those dancers, I Amy, know. this is crazy. That's your least favorite song. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. But when I look at those dancers, <laughs> I'm like, this doesn't even feel like 1975 to me. This feels like 1985 with their sunglasses, with their colorful socks. I mean, the fact that this movie is even dated with the Richard Nixon uh, resignation, like that wasn't supposed to be in there. They didn't want that to be in there. The director wanted the movie to feel timeless. I think that is one of the parts of it that dates it. But then do you hear the reasoning behind it? The director said that he believes that Brad recorded that and likes to listen to it. Like it's his favorite, <laughs> like favorite tape. I just thought it was sort of an idea of like, whoa, life is shaky right now. Our president is stepping down in every way that we thought society was supposed to go is like broken. It feels like upheaval. It feels like a rise of cynicism. Like this way isn't working anymore. Yeah, but I think that culture is always feeling like, oh, our leaders are corrupt. We need to make changes in our society. Like we, we are living in a cyclical thing. Like, yes, things may be getting worse, but I don't think there is ever like a time where people are like, our leaders are the best and everything is working out great and everybody is accepted the way that they're <laughs> supposed to be accepted. You know, it, it gives everybody a reason for being like, how do we make the world a better place? And how do we step to things in a different way? You know, so I do think that there is a part of us that just long will always be dealing with similar issues. We might have different specifics, but the issues are going to be the same. That's probably true. Do you find that comforting? I find it weirdly comforting because I keep being like, we're definitely living in the worst time period ever. And then I think they're probably all bad. Things can be bad and that's okay. Like we know more. So it's worse for us, right? Like there's more access to things <laughs> that we can understand. You know, I feel like it was simpler back in a certain point because we couldn't get every bit of information. You couldn't see reports from the street. You couldn't get somebody leaking documents, you know, like just the, by the amount of sheer information, things are always going to be worse. Oh, man. Does that mean they're going to get even worse than they are now? Yeah. I mean, forget it. When we all are wearing our Google glasses or or I should say our Apple TV glasses, whatever those things are. <laughs> but why do you think this has endured? I think the main reason it has endured is because it captures that idea that a movie is a community. You know, like right now in L.A., I think we're just living in this amazing, amazing moment where our repertory theaters are killing it. Like all the theaters here that show old movies, their programming is like through the roof. The crowds are wonderful. I feel like in the world before pandemic, when I went to like repertory theaters here, it was a crowd that was like my age or older. And now when I go to repertory theaters, it is young. And I love that, that like there are young people going to see cool movies that you could stream at any time, but they want to be in that room and they want to be with each other. I mean, just on Friday the 13th, I went to go see the fourth Friday the 13th movie at Vidiot's in the gigantic theater. I'd never seen that Friday the 13th part four before. It's the one with Crispin Glover in it and, and Corey Feldman. Oh, wow. It's actually maybe a watchable. It is. I would say it is a watchable Friday the 13th movie. I didn't know that existed. And I'm sitting in there next to like teenagers who want to see Friday the 13th on Friday the 13th. And that is the kind of vibe that makes me feel like movie theaters are going to be okay and that cinema is going to be okay. And I think Rocky Horror is a testament to that that's been going on for decades, that this isn't just about getting the film in your brain. This is about being around your people and laughing together as a way of like a piece of art that brings all the weirdos of every single town together. How amazing is that? You know, we had a Rocky Horror right. when I was growing up in San Antonio, Texas, and I loved that, that like. That was where the weirdos were. So are you kind of saying like in the in a way, it's like this is repertory theaters before repertory theaters? Yeah. I mean, I think it taps into that that idea of what film is. But I also really do believe that this is a good movie. I mean, to me, a good movie is something that is like endlessly watchable, so fun to talk about and pull apart. There's so many ideas in it. And it's just always revealing different layers. I mean, this movie was made with so much attention. 
Like, why is there a gigantic black and white photocopy looking Mona Lisa on the wall? Why? Like, what is that? What can it mean? We could have a 10 minute conversation about it. And isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Or could it mean nothing? Like, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, sometimes it's just like, it's a collage. It's almost like what you make of it. Like, I can look at a piece of art and you can look at a piece of art and we can both walk away with different meanings. It's like what Rick Rubin says in his book, which I highly recommend. Whatever your intent with art is, once you put it out into the culture, you can't take it back or tell people that they're wrong about how they've received it. And I think that that's kind of the cool thing about this. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because when you listen to interviews with, you know, Richard O'Brien and and with the director, with Jim Sharman, when this movie is coming out, they're almost talking about that. They're talking about what is it like that we created this thing, built it up from like 65 seats in England, a tiny little theater. And now, I mean, the way they're describing it, they're describing it like this is their monster. And now they're releasing it into the world. And how is it going to be accepted? Uh, I'm really an old fashioned girl. I like uh, a beginning, a middle and an end, you know. And I think that's all it is, really. It's an action story. It's like Saturday morning pictures. In fact, the filming has, from time to time, especially in the laboratory, got very like Saturday morning pictures. It was really good. I mean, the excitement to me of the film very much was in the fact that for once there wasn't, you know, something that was created by a very small group of people, which was then taken over by a sort of massive concern and, and sort of pulped out. But that, in fact, the people that originally created it and the actors had a lot to do with the, you know, creating the original role, that we've kept the sort of basic core of the original people uh, through the various sort of transformations as the sort of monster has grown. And I like that analogy too, you know, like, Will the world be nice to our monster? Because the world is not usually that nice to the monster. And that is part of, I think, one of the smart things that the young marketing guy that we like referenced at the beginning of the show that he did in sort of helping this movie launch, which is you can't just give birth to a monster and be like, here's your new monster, everybody. You're going to love this. You know, the number of times people have tried to create cult movies and it doesn't work. Well, Sharknado. Yeah, far out numbers of times that it works. And what this guy came up with was like, Let's not advertise it. Let's just get a theater in New York was where he decided to shift it to. Get a theater in New York that's willing to play it at midnight for months. Just get them to commit ahead of time. And you know what? I'm not going to spend almost any money advertising this because I want people to feel like they discovered it. The people who wander in and see this movie are going to feel like they own it now. And that ownership is going to help them promote this film for me. And that is how this film is going to find its crowd. You know, he knew that if you touch this movie too hard, it's going to collapse. And how wonderful is that, too? You know, like, because I think now we're in such a world of like, what did it make opening weekend? Did it make this? Okay, good. That's the benchmark that we'll measure it by. But to have a company believe in a film long enough to give it years to grow, because it took years. I don't even think people were dressing up when they went to go see this movie for like two or three years. That faith that you think you made something worth watching and that it deserves time. Because you're right, if this movie came out today, they'd put it in like a bunch of theaters. It probably wouldn't make its money back immediately. And then they'd be like, well, that failed. And then they'd bury it in a vault. And it would be like, it's a flop and it would never come out again. Well, but this is my argument. And I think this is something that I believe that all movies like this, the reason why they work is because there is a true love there. And why I believe in Tommy Wiseau and why I go back to the room is because I think that Tommy Wiseau thought he was making an important movie. This movie is a labor of love, right? And it's interesting. And it's a lot of different ideas are coming across. It's genuine. I think that Showgirls, you know, Esther House, and even Tommy Wiseau will say like, well, I, I intended it to be funny. I intended it to be ridiculous. But I believe that Esther House thought he was making something like important there, you know? And that love is a distinction on what makes these movies interesting and accessible. And that may be the thing. And this is love. And we're going back to love. Love is love. And you're right. And one of the things that I think, I mean, Sharknado was made to be bad, right? It's like, we're going to put bad actors in this. We're going to make it bad. Here, I think they do something that's kind of more endearing. I mean, like Richard O'Brien has said, you know what? The musicals in here, the music numbers, I'm not a great musician. I just did it. And that's what makes this work. But I think that might be a strength because it stops you being clever. Because I know a lot of musicians uh, socially and... Uh, I know a lot of them sort of quite envy the way, I mean, not badly, but they do envy the way that I can write, knock out a simple tune, you know? Because they, I like uh, all artists uh, concerned with technique, and the technique, I think, sometimes gets in the way, you know? 
And Susan Sarandon said the same thing. You know, when she auditioned for this, she's like, I can't really sing. My agents definitely felt I was insane to want to do the Rocky Horror Show. I had another film, which I left to do the Rocky Horror Show. One of the reasons I got involved was because of Tim Curry. When Tim came out in that opening, you know, the first time his entrance still remains one of the most electric performances and moments on stage history that I've ever seen. And then they came back in to uh, cast the movie and, and I went by just to say hi. And he said, oh my God, would you read for Janet? And I said, oh my God, I can't sing. And I'm really phobic about it. And they said, well, come on, you can sing. Come on, can't you? Try hitting this note. Can you sing happy birthday? Can you? And I thought, you know what? When I get there, they'll give me alcohol or drugs or something, and that'll help get me through. Of course, they didn't. And I will argue that, you know, Susan Sarandon's thin, kind of normal, happy birthday singing voice To me, I love a musical where like the lead is not the greatest singer because I find it charming. It makes me feel like I just opened my mouth and I started singing too. You know, like singing is available for everybody. Maybe we don't all have to be great singers. And I feel like as an audience member, I don't need somebody to be a great singer in a musical. I want them to sing with a lot of passion, which is why until my grave, I will defend Russell Crowe and Les Mis. He sings with so much emotion in his voice. I don't care that he's not, you know, Hugh Jackman. We were just talking about this. It's a very, it's a very passionate <laughs> performance. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. So are we saying that 45 years later or, you know, 46 years later, this culture has finally caught up to Rocky Horror Picture Show? I think it dumb been caught up, man. But right. I love making the argument about it. I love, I love sticking up for this movie as a movie. Well, this is where I might disagree with you because I don't know if this movie stands on its own two feet, but I think it is carried by an army of people. I think that this movie is the equivalent of a stage dive at a mosh pit. We are all there to hold that person uh, and bring them back to the stage. You know, if we were just a stage dive and no crowd was there, we'd fall flat on our face. And I think that this movie is the equivalent of stage diving and having everybody catch you. Well, as long as we're caught, I suppose we can agree on this. Well, you know what? It's interesting. We've talked about a bunch of different movies today and movies that have been inspired by this and movies that we have discussed on the show, like movies like Grease, uh, movies like Chicago that have elements. But I think there's one very clear connection, one that feels to me like it has the most DNA shared with this movie, and that is uh, Little Shop of Horrors. And Little Shop of Horrors, I think, is one of those films that we talked about that also is incredibly bizarre. I think the plot is a lot more cogent and I think that it definitely doesn't go as crazily outlandish, but it definitely it definitely goes in different directions than you would think. And I think maybe it's a time for us to revisit that one as well. So take a listen. I think that they really had to push to make sure that they got to do this movie the way they needed to. You know, one of the stories too is that like the studio asked Howard Ashman if he would rewrite Suddenly Seymour. And if he would change it from Suddenly Seymour to Suddenly Someone, because they thought a song oh, really? called Suddenly Someone would have a much bigger chance of being a radio hit. And he was like, absolutely not. It is Suddenly Seymour. And that is what this is going to be. And he didn't totally have the clout to do that yet. Like he would. I mean, this is the movie that, you know, basically is responsible, I would say, also for the modern musical in that like... Right. In that, like, Disney sees this and they're like, wow, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, they hired Ashman to write their first musical that they were going to do. It was going to bring back the musical Little Mermaid. Howard Ashman was hired first and he was like, you got to bring Menken with me. And then they do Beauty and the Beast. And then, of course, Ashman dies. And then, like, Menken goes on to do, like, everything else. Like, we wouldn't have musicals, I think, in this generation as much if not for Howard Ashman. And you wouldn't have Howard Ashman on the radar if it weren't for, you know, this movie. Yeah. Or for this play in this movie. So like, yeah, I think there's just like a complete direct line from from Little Shop of Horrors well, to Zac Efron, I guess. Disney wouldn't have made High School Musical if they hadn't had so much success with musicals. Right. So, so we have Zac Efron because of this movie. You can find that in our archive. It's out there. It's available for you to download. But Amy, we've done our Halloween movie. What is next? Well, Paul, I'm glad you asked. There are a few reasons why I have a movie in mind that I want to do next. One, I have had so much fun talking about Reese Witherspoon in the last couple months. You know, we did our episode on Legally Blonde. We did our episode on American Psycho. I'd like to close this out. I want a third Reese. I want a Reese trifecta. Two, a certain director named Alexander Payne has a new movie out called The Holdovers. 
So let's do an Alexander Payne movie in three. It is election week. Doesn't that mean that we should be doing election? Ooh, I love election. And just like Legally Blonde, there is a rumored sequel, uh, which I don't think will ever happen. But I'd be curious to discuss that with you as well next week. Well, I love discussing anything with you, Paul. Anything at all. Well, I really feel like we definitely had some Amy Amy hits lately. I brought Star Trek in, and you gave us Hairspray, and you gave us Rocky Horror Picture Show. And now we get to know a little bit more about what makes Amy Amy. <laughs> all right, all right. We can do Beverly Hills Cop someday, if that's what you're telling me. Uh, well, maybe. I don't know if I want to use it on that one. I'll see. I'll see. All <laughs> right. Uh, all right. We will see you next week. You can get election wherever you stream your films, including the local public library where you can get everything that we talk about here on the show for free. So try those amazing apps. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com.